In fact, uh, you'd be interested to know that the first two tour championships that we hosted in 98 and 2000, the club actually owned the merchandise. And so we staffed it, we bought, we built the tent, we got the fixtures, figured out the POS, all of that. And it was a huge risk for us because what happens if you have one day of rain? Yeah. If you, if you take 25% of your sales out of a, a product that you purchase for the week, then you're sunk. Luckily, we didn't have that happen. I'm Roberto, professional golfer and aspiring business guy. And I'm Dan, business guy and wannabe golfer. We met in college in a boring engineering class, made a connection through golf, and have been kicking around ideas on the business of golf ever since. On the Course Record Show, we talked to some of the smartest folks in the golf business and get the inside stories and strategies driving the business of golf forward. This episode of the Course Record Show is brought to you by Holderness and Born. When it comes to any clothing, fit is a complicated thing. But when you have to not only look good, but be able to wear that clothing in all types of weather and swing a golf club comfortably, fit is even more essential. H&B has absolutely nailed the fit. Their approach is tailored, but not tight. When I first started wearing H&B, some of my buddies on the XL side of the size spectrum were skeptical. They were like, yeah, it looks great on you, but no way I'm wearing anything tailored fit. But after convincing them to give it a try, they've all made the switch to H&B. The fit loosens up as you get towards large, extra large, and on up, but still maintains a sharp look. The sleeves aren't past your elbow. There's not a bunch of fabric bunched around the shoulder. It's just a more polished look across all sizes. Check out the new spring styles and the perennial favorites like the Maxwell shirt on hbgolf.com. Today on the Course Record Show, we're joined by Chad Parker, the COO, General Manager, and Director of Golf at Eastlake Golf Club in Atlanta. Chad's been at Eastlake for 25 years, so he's seen a thing or two when it comes to golf course facilities. We cover a lot of those topics in this conversation, including food and beverage, merchandising, philanthropy, and the membership structure at Eastlake. We also talk about Chad's leadership philosophy when it comes to running the club and what it's like to host a PGA Tour event every year. Hope you enjoy this conversation as much as Dan and I did. So let's get to Chad. We're joined on the Course Record Show by Chad Parker. Chad, you wear many hats at Eastlake, a historic golf course in Atlanta. What are the business decisions that you're asked to make in your position? Well, before we jump in, thanks uh, you both for having me uh, on the show. I'm excited to talk to you guys about the business of golf. It's it's a passion of mine. I mean, it's my my background is professional golf management. So yes, I did major in golf management. That is a thing. Not at not tech, but... Uh, at Mississippi State and one of the PGM schools that the PGA of America runs. So, you know, to answer your question, most of my day these days revolve around staff and making sure the staff have what they need uh, to do their jobs, answer all the questions that that surround that from a from an agronomy standpoint, from a food and beverage standpoint, from a golf operations standpoint. And then just to make things more interesting for us, we have a PGA Tour event, we have a made-for-TV college event, we have an invitational event, Roberto, that you've been at, and then we own a nine-hole public golf course. So all of those things keep me pretty busy. Sounds like it. So take us inside Eastlake a little bit. How is Eastlake structured from a membership perspective? Well, taking a step backwards, Eastlake is the is the oldest 18-hole golf course in the city of Atlanta and, and had a lot of great years from 1904 to really the late 60s. In the late 60s, the club kind of experienced a, a decline or a gradual decline, and it decided to 
to sell off one of its golf courses and, and reform into two different entities. The, the Atlanta Athletic Club was the original holder of the property, and they moved out to Johns Creek. And then a group of members stayed and reformed Eastlake Country Club, and that was in the early 70s. So fast forward to the late 80s, early 90s, the, the club was really experiencing a lot of problems. Uh, the membership had dwindled to almost nothing. And a local developer, Tom Cousins, came in and utilized the club to help drive the revitalization of the Eastlake community. So the membership is a mixture of those that were members before what we would call a legacy member. So members from you know somewhere before 95 to today, we have a, a mixture of corporate members and some new individual members. So you know, it's a really unique mix in that regard, but it's working and it's, a, it's, it's just a, a statement to the vision of Tom Cousins that is working. That's really cool. Something that keeps coming up in our conversations around the business of golf and facilities specifically is, is utilization. Like how do you get people on and off a golf course? How do you keep a course busy? What's the right level? I think Eastlake is unique, as you said, because that corporate membership piece is a real Monday through Friday, Monday through Thursday type mm -hmm. crowd. And then your individual members might play more on the weekend. Is that correct? And is that, has that been like a really good yin and yang for you guys? Or how do you guys manage that? No, I think it's correct. I mean, certainly pre-COVID, it was correct. We'll see what happens in 2022 and beyond once corporate America starts kind of getting back in the rhythm, whatever that means. I personally think that corporate travel especially is going to be pretty dramatically impacted by COVID with uh, the advent of these video conferencing. You may go see a client four times a year versus eight or some sort of multiplier that way. And then if you look at how that impacts you know, our business, that's, that's four less hotel rooms, that's four less dinners, that's four less rounds of golf. Multiply that across the entire spectrum of, uh, of, of the hospitality industry. And I think that's a very real thing that could happen. We'll see. So far, we, we've seen corporate America be pretty um, guarded in terms of how they're spending money. But Roberto, to your point, that is the model that we see that works. I mean, the corporate play during the week, more individual play on the weekends and Fridays. That's great. It's funny you say that about the, the sort of the reining in of the belt for some of the corporate uh, outings and, and, and corporate memberships. I work in the tech sector. There is not a lot of golf played uh, in my industry. What's your, what's your outlook on corporate golf sort of post-COVID travel returning, et cetera? Is, it, is this a headwind or tailwind for corporate memberships? Uh, well, I, essentially, it depends on the company because for us, without naming names, I mean, we have a very wide spectrum of corporate members. And so one of the most interesting things for me is how do you interact with, with all of different kinds, people from manufacturing to financial services, to professional services, to law firms, big and small, uh, family-owned, publicly traded, privately held. I mean, we're all over the spectrum. And so how they use it really varies. But I would say in general, I, I don't think there's any better way to get to know someone than playing golf. I was listening to your, your podcast with Joe Ogilvy, and he was making that point about the AT&T Pro-Am and, and just the opportunity that golf gives you to learn about people. And there's no other activity that I'm aware of that even comes close to that. And so I guess it depends, Dan, on, to answer your question, it depends on the industry and, and how much is it person to person versus business to business. And what we see is a, is a lot of person to person, either making sure you keep the people as clients or you get them you know, to come over to your firm or to whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish through the round of golf. But I mean, I know we've all played with golf with a lot of people and you learn a lot about people on the golf course that you would just never learn in any other activity that I'm familiar with. 
That was Dan indirectly lobbying his boss to uh, let him do a little more business development on the golf course. Well played, Dan. Well played. Yeah, happy boss to, man, if you're hearing, that's for you. <laughs> yeah, happy to send a letter of recommendation uh, to outline those steps if you need. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Chad, what are the most uh, passionate issues for your membership? Well, I think just like anybody else, Roberto, people like to be known. And I think that the thing that we try to do at Eastlake is in a very kind of reserved way to know the members and know what they like. And then when they come in through the gate, I mean, to, to remind ourselves on the other side of the, the curtain, so to speak, that the people, when they get there, they have all of life's pressures and, and stresses like the rest of us have. But when they come out to the club, they're getting, they're hoping to get away from that. And so I think that you always, if you work in the industry or any hospitality industry for that matter, you have to keep that as a mindset that they're coming there to relax. And so anything that you can do that will make them feel more relaxed, make them, you know, feel special. I mean, is, is what we try to do. So I think that is the number one thing that we strive for and having a small membership and having a staff that doesn't turn over a lot is kind of the secret sauce for us. That's cool. It's interesting to hear you jump right to hospitality because Brian Ferris said the same thing. We're kind of trying to talk business of golf and operations and his mind just went straight to how do I take care of my customers? And you guys have similar tracks. It's really cool to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. So Chad, with all your titles and all the influence you have at Eastlake, how much of your job do you see as leading the club versus serving the membership? Well, I would say it's 95% serving the membership and you can't do that well without leading. And so the way that I kind of view my role is if, if we have a situation where we fail or we have an employee who's not able to, to live up to the standard that we're looking for, the way that I look about it is how did I fail that employee? What, what training could I have given that person? What support, what fill in the blank, whatever it is, the right kind of, did the, did the, did the product that we have on the menu not come in and we didn't tell them and they had to tell the member that we didn't have it available. Things like that, basic blocking and tackling, you know, that is the role of management. And it's not to have a bunch of letters behind your name. I mean, my role is to, is to make sure that people that are serving the members have what they need to serve the members and make sure they feel like they're supported. And so if that doesn't happen, then leading the club does not happen. On the flip side of that, you have young managers that are looking you know, to grow in the business and they want to learn the quote unquote business side of things. And so you have to spend time on the financials and all the things that others may identify as the business of golf. That's kind of secondary to me. That's an outcome of what we're creating by the interactions and the environment that we create. So, but you do have to understand it because you have to go to board meetings and committee meetings and they're going to ask questions and you need to understand it. But I don't focus a lot on that. I think that those, those numbers that you see on the piece of paper are made up of thousands of interactions between staff, between people. I mean, that's, and that's pure and simple, the only way to look at it. And so if you're not doing those kinds of things, and I'm not saying I'm the best at it, and I always try to be better at it, but that is how I think about it. And, and I think that's what makes us uh, different and why we've had some of the success we've had. I was going to follow up. What's the hardest part of the job in terms of serving the membership? Is it like food and beverage, keeping the golf course in shape. What's the, what's the thing that keeps you up at night the most in that regard? Depends on the time of the year. I mean, 
when you're aerating greens, that's the hardest part of the job is, is you know, why do we have to do it and when, and why, why are we taking away my golf course? And from a pure business standpoint, the food and beverage operation is the most difficult because you know, let's say that you have a club of, even if you have 500 members and you have a, a food and beverage operation that has to operate at a certain level, a minimum level, no restaurant would ever open its doors if it only had access to 500 people, just wouldn't do it. And so it, you're already starting from the, from the, from the very beginning behind the kind of behind the eight ball. And so I think that you have to educate um, people that make those kind of decisions and say, listen, if you want to have a certain level of a, of a food and beverage operation, it's not going to make money. You hope that you can break even. I and mean, that's the goal for most private clubs. I think anyone you would talk to at, that works at a golf facility would tell you the same thing. I mean, if it makes a little bit, that's, that's gravy. So from a, from a pure profitability standpoint, the food and beverage is the most difficult. But the other parts can be difficult depending on what situation you, you, know, you find yourself in. The access to 500 mem- members is really tough for any restaurant outside of the country club, golf club industry. But some clubs seem to have succeeded in at least making it work and some haven't. What, what do you think sets those two groups apart? Well, I think you first take the demographics of the club and do you, how, how far away do the people live from the club? How often do they come to the club is, is a key factor in that. How far are you going to drive? How do people use the club? We, we've seen a, a pretty good resurgence in our food and beverage operation with more individual members, especially on weekends. So they'll come in and play golf and maybe have a, a sandwich before they play and certainly have lunch afterwards, have a beer at the turn or whatever. Those, those add up. So the power rates at, at the, on the beverage carts, those add up. And so... I think that you just have to watch and see how people are using the club and understand that some clubs may offer a fine dining option and that is a home run for them and others offer that and it's a complete dud. So for us, if, if we have most of our members, let's say they're outside 10 miles of the club, how many restaurants are they going to drive by to get to us that do wonderful things that have well-known chefs, farm to table concepts, you name whatever the hottest thing is, things that we just can't keep up with. How do you compete with that? And can you be okay with your ego not doing that? I think that's what really is the, is the separating factor in clubs is, is kind of an ego. Does, does your board or have someone on your board who wants to have a wine program, who wants to have all this, all these things, whatever, and the members just don't want it. Those are the ones that don't make it probably versus the club that kind of fill the members out and say, Hey, it's a, they, they want more relaxed vibe. They don't want to come ahead and, and have a coat on or whatever. And, and then kind of tailor their offering to that and their staffing to be, to be honest. I mean, because it takes a certain level employee to execute those fine dining options. And if you're doing 10 covers on a Friday night versus if you go to bones and they're doing 300, the math just doesn't work. And so if you have a menu, a fine dining menu that has, let's say 15 options on it, and you have to you now think about it and take a step back. Now you have to order because all 15, you have to be ready if all 15 of your covers want a 10 ounce fillet, you have to have 15 10 ounce fillets. What do you do with those 10 ounce fillets if they don't sell? Well, let's decide you want to run a lobster special and that doesn't sell. What do you do with that? You completely just eat that food cost, which is extravagant. And so the margins are gone. And so that is what drives whether or not a food and beverage makes it or not. How do you cross utilize ingredients? How do you you know, create a menu that you can be profitable on, but also it, it be what the members want. That's the secret. 
say beverage carts carry Powerades. I, I, I had no idea. I think we could go for a very different part. I think I'm on the other side of the beverage car most of the time. Yeah, us athletes, we're drinking Powerades and water, and, and others may be drinking White Claws and seltzers and beers and whatever, and transfusions. Every club, including mine, is one of those like clubs that's like, dude, our per capita Tito's consumption is the highest in America, the beverage cart girl told me. It's like, eh, that's probably not true. I'm not going to fact check you on it, but I'll take your word for it. You yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. I, I think it just comes down to listening. And it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. You're listening to your customers. And if your customers don't want that, why are you forcing it? Because if you look at behind the scenes on the line, I mean, I love to cook and I love food. I don't have any training in running a food and beverage operation other than just going down to the kitchen, which I've done a lot since I was promoted to GM and just talking to the guys in the kitchen, going in the walk-ins, going in the walk-in freezers, going in the dry storage, looking at ingredients. Why do we do this? How are we ordering that? And just asking questions. And I've learned way more doing that. And then on a busy day in the grill, I'll go work as an expo or next to the expo and just watch the food come out. The best indicator of, if, of your quality is just go to the place where the servers dump the plates. I do that weekly. Why, why does it, why is, you know, why are we having this come back? Do we have too much of it or is it not good? And if you, you know, have a problem, you go talk to me and say, Hey, I noticed you ordered the blah, 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 mahi, mahi sandwich. You didn't eat but half of it. Why? Oh, I just wasn't that hungry or yeah, it wasn't that good. Yeah. Um, so if you have a relationship with a member, you can just ask them, say, go to the chef and say, Hey, the mahi, mahi sandwich is terrible. That's coming off the menu. We've had three people tell us that. So just scrap it. We're not good at it. So take it off. Let's do the things that we're good at. That's smart. The other thing you said about staffing, I think was interesting. I was fortunate to get invited to a hoopie match club in mm -hmm. South Georgia and they do about a million things, right? But one of the things I thought was really smart, they go for the casual vibe and it's very laid back. It's very awesome, but they realized, Hey, we're an hour from really any population center. So if we're going to offer elevated dining experience, it's going to be really difficult to staff that. Yep. So they basically do like family style dining. The food is unbelievable, but they bring out these like big trays or big bowls of food. So we had eight in our party. So they kind of put some, some big dishes out and you share and you can staff that party of eight with one server and yep. the bar is six feet away from you. And you can just casually be like, Hey, John, can I get one more drink? And he'll walk it right. over and incredibly smart way to create a great dining experience yep. with limited staffing. And I was like, wow, that's really, really cool. And that was a great experience. I thought. Yeah. I'm looking forward to going down. We've got a couple members that are members down there. I haven't made it down yet, but you know, I think that the other thing too, to remember if you work in the business is to learn from your peers because your, your members, at least the members that are members at a Hoopy and Eastlake and other places, they go to, they go to other places a lot and they see how things are done and they like certain things that are done and they don't like certain things that are done. And you try to you create the you know environment to where you capture all the best of that. And there's some some principles that are non-negotiable, but I, I think you just continue to learn. But it, it really comes down to listening to your customers, just like any other business. And you got to be willing to swallow your ego and say, hey, you know what? I thought we would be good at doing a mahi mahi sandwich, but we're not. So we're not going to try that anymore. We're going to uh, go back to the club sandwich or you know whatever. Something tells me the mahi was a giant failure on your menu. You keep going back to that. True or false? Number one seller. Is it really? <laughs> Number one seller. Nice. Good and to know. So we're, we're doing well with a mahi, mahi sandwich, uh, okay. fish sandwich, and you can get it over a salad or whatever. People love it. I, I was a naysayer, so I'm a little bit, I lost that battle. But 
others on our team wanted to try it and it proved to be a home run. It's always wrong. You mentioned interaction between people. Eastlake has been a steadfast supporter of their caddy program. What do you see as the main purpose of that program and, and how do you recruit those caddies? Well, I mean, for us, and you, you were, I think I heard the question about, you're talking about our caddy program and our, our caddies from the very first day that we opened have been employees of the club and they're not independent contractors. And so they're, they're definitely part of the team. Wow. They're invited to the Christmas party. Uh, they participate in the profit share if they work at the minimum number of hours. They're employees and they're just like I am. They're just as important as, as anyone else. And so I think that to have a successful caddy program, the membership and the club has to be committed to a caddy program. You can't kind of be in the middle and make it optional or have all these other kind of variables that you hear about. And so for us, it's not optional. If you play golf at Eastlake, you're taking a caddy. If you need a golf cart because of your physical condition, and it's dry enough, then that's fine. Well, you can ride in a golf cart, but the caddy's still carrying your bag. And so they're just, there is absolutely zero discussion on that. And so that it's just something we've always been known for. And I, th- I think that's why we have a, a good group of about a hundred caddies on staff and a lot of regulars that, that, that work every day and um, they make a, you know, a pretty good living. And it's just a good relationship that, and that we know we need each other. That's cool. I think the legacy of your caddy program is starting to, kind of spread its roots because I just know two of my roommates in college at Georgia Tech caddied at Eastlake, not full-time, but here and there helped for events. And then we have a mutual friend, Jonathan Baker, who's gone on to great success and worked some with the masters. He caddied at Eastlake. Your head golf professional, Drew, started as a caddy, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So that's, it's really cool to meet people that had that stage of their life, even if they continued on to different things. Really cool. Yeah. Well, I think if you look at the, you know, if you look at the Northeast and the Midwest, I mean, that is it's just a way of life and right. it's just not that common in the South, but you know, for us, if a guy wants to work full time as a caddy and that's what he wants to do and, and have that level of you know, that lifestyle, that's fine. But if, if a guy wants to, or a gal wants to be a college student and make a little extra money here and there, that's fine. And then they go off and do their own thing. So I think that, uh, it's, it's a pretty neat environment. And we have guys that are, they come and go, as you could imagine. Yeah. How does hosting the tour championship affect your operations and the PL? Well, I, I generally tell people the tour championship for me is about 20% of my annual hours. And so there's not a week that goes by that I don't spend time on the tour championship, even in the coldest weeks of December to today, in terms of planning and the relationship that we have with the PGA Tour. And having an event every year is a lot different than having one that comes every 10 years. And so for us, the, 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 the benefit of hosting the tour championship to our operation is very positive. And you just start with your reputation. You're, you're getting to come play at the golf course where the tour championship is held every year. And people remember the things that happened at the tour championship. And they remember things, the shots that were hit, outcomes that were had the fact that we, you know, we held the first Payne Stewart award ceremony on the, on the old 18th green. And now that award has just become such such a neat thing on the PGA Tour, highly sought after by the players. It's kind of a you know, lifetime achievement, if you will, almost award. And so there's all these layers to it, Roberto. And it's for us, for a lot of years, it wasn't so much about how the club did. It, it, it was about how our foundations did and how our charity work did. And that's still the case today. Candidly speaking, if we break even on the tour championship from the club's point of view, we're happy with that. As long as the charitable partners are made whole and, and continue to do the work that they're doing, 
I'll give the tour a lot of credit. Last year, even during COVID, the tour kind of met the obligation that the charities had in their budgets um, with no fans, which is a, a huge accomplishment and just a statement of uh, partnership that we have with the tour. Wow, that's really great. Yeah. Shifting gears a bit to merchandising. I know Eastlake has won many awards and been committed for its merchandising and its pro shop, et cetera. I cut my teeth as a consultant in the retail business, so I'm very intrigued by the topic generally. What would you say are some of the key drivers for success in merchandising at a golf club? I think it starts with the vendors. And again, back to relationships you have with the vendors. Our philosophy, and I used to be, when I was a head golf professional for almost 15 years, that was my primary role. It was the merchandising because that's a huge part of our operation, the retail piece. In fact, uh, you'd be interested to know that the first two tour championships that we hosted in 98 and 2000, the club actually owned the merchandise. And so we staffed it, we bought, we built the tent, we got the fixtures, figured out the POS, all of that. And it, I think that we did so well, Roberto, that the tour kind of looked at the, looked down and was like, listen, that, that may be something that we want to take over. I had a suitcase full of samples in 98 and I just called the, the sales guy at the PGA Tour and I was like, hey, can you give me the, uh, the list of everyone who's bought hospitality? I'm going to go see them. And uh, I'd go walk into these CEOs offices with a, my own personal suitcase filled with uh, fairway and green samples. And before you know it, they'd order 500 shirts for their clients or whatever. And I mean, I did that for the first two years and we absolutely killed it on corporate sales. Um, wow. Just, just getting out there and just getting after it. So that learned a ton on those two years. And it was a huge risk for us because what happens if you have one day of rain? Yeah. If you, if you take 25% of your sales out of a, a product that you purchase for the week, then you're sunk. Luckily, we didn't have that happen. The, you know, the worst thing that we had that we had happen is we locked ourselves out of the merchandise tent. <laughs> um, and that was a, a story in itself. But uh, one of our more slender uh, cart guys had to climb in through the HVAC duct to, to open the door from the inside. And that really happened in 2000. So, but, you know, back to your question. I mean, it's a huge part of what we do. And I think it starts with the vendors and the relationship you have with them and then just picking good products. I mean, and picking what people want to buy and wear and, and kind of staying on top of it. We do surveys fairly often, but still the number one combination is a guy wearing khaki shorts and a solid colored shirt. Maybe the belt's a little different than it used to be. That's what most people still wear. But, you know, there are guys that like other things. And, uh, and so we try to distract those and make sure that we stock accordingly. So say more about that. How do you, how do you get a sense for what people want to wear? Because presumably most clubs have access to the same amount, same number of vendors, the same names, right? right. Maybe they have not as good relationships as what you've invested in. I, I, I understand that. But how do you make those calls on what to carry and what's, uh, how do you get the pulse of your membership and your guests in that sense to make the right choices and, and cut the right invoices? Well, I think that most, like most, PGA golf professionals, you go to Orlando every year in January and that's the big PGA show. And that's you know where you buy your fall, but you, you also get a chance to kind of get the sense of how companies are doing and you get to interact with the, the movers and shakers within those companies. And, and really what we do is just walk up and down the aisles. We, we, we break ourselves up into, into teams and we'll go look at booths that are busy versus not busy. And if the booths are busy, then we'll make a note of that and we'll invite, you know, that brand to, to come see us. If we can't get an appointment at the show, which we don't do a lot of buying at the show, we usually see the vendors in house, but that's one, that's one way 
to, to see kind of what is, is, is up and coming. And then if you do bring in a new vendor, you bring in enough where you can get a true representation. I think one mistake that most people make is they'll say, okay, I want to try uh, vendor A. We think they may be hot and I'll bring in 48 pieces and put it on the four-way in the corner. And then at the end of the two months, you've sold nothing. So if you're going to bring somebody in give them a fighting chance, bring in as much as you can to represent the brand, the story the brand's trying to tell. And if it doesn't sell, for us, if we bring you in one season and you don't sell out, it's very likely that you're not coming back the next season. And we'll just tell you that. So listen, you did the, the, the key indicator for us is sell through. So it's, if it doesn't sell through, you don't come back. But, you know, so if you have, if you do your buying right and you give the vendor a chance to succeed, you put them front and center, you educate the staff, you have staff wearing the product, they understand how it fits, they understand how it performs when you're playing. If you do all of those things and it still doesn't sell, then either you just made a you know grave error in terms of what you think people may want, or the product just doesn't live up to the hype or whatever. But you know, for us, it's it's sell through. What have you done for me lately? We we certainly don't have that problem when we stock a Peter Millar or something like that. But we've had problems with vendors I'm not going to name that you know we this didn't sell, so we stopped doing business with them. That's interesting, very interesting. Chad, switching gears a little bit, East Lake's motto is golf with a purpose, and as a spinoff to East Lake is a organization called Purpose Built Communities that I'll let you give the details, but it's basically a, a organization that consults other cities and other communities that are trying to follow East Lake's playbook in revitalizing a neighborhood through golf or otherwise. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that and then whether you're involved? Yeah, I think that Purpose Built Communities was created just because there was so much interest in what was going on at East Lake. And so just to, to summarize real fast, the, the tenets of, of the East Lake model is a, is a defined area or neighborhood. In our case, it was East Lake Meadows. We focus on cradle to college education, uh, community wellness. There's some, some key components and you want to have a quarterback, community quarterback. And I'm sure the folks at, at Purpose Built correct me if I missed one, but those are basically the four tenets of the recipe. So we had so many people you know, coming to look at that from, uh, from around the U.S. It got to be where we just couldn't effectively run our organization and at the same time talk about the benefits of what we've done. And so that's when, you know, Purpose Built Communities was formed. Its, its role really is a, is a consultant, basically is to help quote unquote, franchise the model. We don't do any of the funding of the models. We just say, this is the playbook that with the things that we've learned, you can be part of our network if you agree to, 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 to follow these basic tenets. And we'll, we'll, uh, what, what that gives you is years of experience for other cities that have done it. New Orleans uh, is the furthest along behind Eastlake. They're in year 12, I think, or 13. And so every year that you exist as an organization, you learn something good or bad. And so for the people that are just starting out, they have the benefit of those that have been out there for so long. And so that's why it's important, you know, that the work of the Eastlake Foundation continues because we want to be, to be able to say, well, in 40 year, in the, your 40th year, you're going to see this happen versus in your first year. And so it's spread all over the U.S. now. There's a, there's a separate organization that's, that's part of the Cousins uh, family of organizations, and they're doing amazing things. COVID certainly slowed them down like everything else, but 
I believe the latest count was 23 cities, and I can double check that and, and, and give it to you that are using that model across the U.S. And there's no end in sight in terms of what the capabilities are. So it's truly a remarkable thing that the outcomes that we've seen are, are truly amazing. And I think kind of the offshoot of that, just to clarify how things go in Atlanta now. So we have the East Lake community. We have a, a purpose-built community over in Grove Park, which is on the west side of Atlanta. And then the newest member in Atlanta is uh, Focus Community Strategies, which is down kind of in the Turner Field, old Turner Field area of Atlanta. So there's three purpose-built communities in the city now. And so the Tour Championship and other charitable efforts support all three of those organizations in the Atlanta market because we're directly tied to those. Um, so it's really a remarkable story. It'll be Tom Cousins' legacy of starting Eastlake and what's happened through that is truly amazing. There's just so many different layers of what can be attributed to his legacy from buildings in Atlanta to, to this organization, to saving Eastlake, to all kinds of things. So I just feel lucky to be part of it. The other thing I'd mention too is there's a, there's a separate kind of a splinter organization called Purpose Built Schools where you can take the lessons learned in education only and apply those to a school system. And so we're actually doing that work down in Thomasville Heights. You guys may remember, or Dan, you may not remember, but a few years ago, Georgia, uh, the governor of Georgia kind of basically not threatened, but strongly encouraged uh, underperforming school systems. If they didn't get their act together, the state was going to come in and take them over and which ruffled a lot of feathers and PTAs and et cetera. But one of the things that happened is basically those, some of those underperforming districts kind of went out to bid and purpose-built schools won the bid at Thomasville Heights, which was one of the worst performing um, school systems in the state. And it began the really difficult work of starting with a group of kids at a certain you know, grade level and trying to implement what we've learned at Eastlake. And the results are starting to prove themselves very similar to what we found at Eastlake. So that's that's a pretty neat thing that's happening. And of course, those, those, those can be pretty easily implemented anywhere because there are school systems everywhere. There may not be a neighborhood everywhere that purpose-built communities would work, but there's certainly a school district everywhere that you could uh, apply some of these lessons. So it's a very, just a, a very amazing organization for sure. That's awesome. That's really rewarding work. And I'm sure it has to be doubly so for you, 20, close to 25 years there. I've been going to Eastlake regularly since 2003 when I started at Georgia Tech. So pretty early on in the revitalization and it had definitely turned the corner by then, but in the 18 years since, just remarkable. So congrats. It's really, really cool to see. Yeah, I agree. Very rewarding. And I think it's one of the reasons why we have, um, you know, a lot of long tenured staff because the mission, off of the purpose, at some places, the motto may be something that's just written on the wall or on your business card or on your tagline of your email. But for us, it's something much different than that. And it's it's tangible. We get to see the first T kids come over. We get to interact with the organizations and learn about what they're doing. We're not involved with it every day, but we're you know part of it. And I think it's uh, it's definitely something that's real to us. Corporate philanthropy and the idea of corporations having a social remit as well as a you know, profit remit has grown too. Given that you've got a big philanthropy mission and a corporate membership, how does that play out? Is that, does that intersect much at Eastlake or are, are you, do you think of those two things more separately than, than maybe the line I'm drawing here? I think they do. I mean, and so the, the message could be as simple as this. I mean, if you're a corporate member at Eastlake and you choose to send a group out to play, or if you buy a shirt in the golf shop or a club sandwich or a Powerade or something else on the beverage cart, anything that we make of this organization 
us being East Lake. At the end of the year, if we if we turn uh, a profit, those funds are are recouped into the the larger nonprofit organization, which is funding a lot of this work. So our message to the corporate members is: Hey, buy hospitality the tour championship. Tell your friends to buy tickets. Send foursomes out here. Pay your dues. Support the East Lake Cup or any of the other foundation, even if it's just a simple campaign. I mean, we ran a huge COVID campaign last year, and we did some really cool things that we can talk about later at the club. That you will never ever find a club in the in the stratosphere of East Lake doing. When we did those during the pandemic, and so it's just part of our DNA. And so all we try to do for the corporate is just provide opportunities, and then hopefully they'll plug into whatever part of the mission that we have with what aligns best with their mission. Whether it's a corporation being involved in you know more of a, a STEM or STEAM technology focused um, platform, or whether it's just hey we want to buy the golf you know team shirts, and we've got some you know money we've got budget for that. So we just try to help funnel them into some of the opportunities. But the, the overall message is if you support what we're doing at Eastlake Golf with a Purpose, it really does have a purpose. It's not the funds are not going to go in somebody's pocket. They're not funding someone's lavish lifestyle. They're definitely doing charitable uh, things in the community that we can point to and, and hopefully make those connections. So our job is to provide the environment where that can happen. And then the nonprofit's job is to just to provide opportunities for people to plug in. Got it. Super cool. Uh, so Roberta and I, we're always throwing out ideas and, and, you know, and thoughts and reflections on how far the game has come and modernized and where it's going to modernize further. So -hmm. this question is about inviting you into this debate a little bit. Okay. You know, you're 25 years at Eastlake. How has the club modernized in that time? And where do you think it's going to keep modernizing, projecting out the next 10 years? Well, I think that if you take operations, for instance, so the the advent of social media and just the way that computer systems work, apps, et cetera, certainly uh, have changed. I mean, definitely on the agronomy side of things, if you look at some of the technology that is available now that makes the, the agronomy part of the operation more efficient, it, ha- it helps you use resources better. That is certainly one that that is, is a lot different 25 years in. And for us, without golf carts, we used to not be able to have any sort of GPS Technology, when that changed a few years ago with uh, the advent of kind of handheld GPS devices. So we use those devices to track pace of play, which we couldn't do without golf carts before. That's a useful tool in the overall experience, which helps us manage expectations. We we can see a group is behind, we can go out and talk to them without having an angry marshal running around the golf course all day. Those are two examples. I mean, outside of that, from a technology standpoint, just seeing what guys are hitting off the 10th tee now at Eastlake, the old number one, mostly irons uh, from the championship tee. And when I started in 98, they were hitting drivers. And so I think that's a pretty big change. But that's it, the whole still plays really difficult for the members, which surprises me. But for the pros and for the guys at the top level, they are they want to hit it in the fairway there and be in the bottom of the hill so they can have a level shot to that green. And they're just hitting a different club to get there. But I, I would say over time, the Tour Championship outside of Tigers win, the year that we almost lost our, our bent grass screens in 2007, the scores have been pretty consistent from anywhere from like 8 under to 14 under, except for that one year. And so I think that's just a testament of the, of the design of the golf course and, and, and how important it is to hit it straight there and be able to putt really well. I think those are the two tenets of the pros or the professionals that we always see outside of the one year in 2007 where the greens were basically dead through an extreme heat event. I remember Zach Johnson coming in to, after he shot 60 
in one of the rounds of the tour championship. And we were excited. We we're like, Hey man, you shot the course record. And he was like, he goes, please don't, you know, make that any part of the official record here. He said, the golf course is defenseless. He said, it's just not right. He said, it's defenseless. He goes, it's just, it's, it's not supposed to play this way. So, so I would just say that technology has changed a fair amount in some ways, but really not that much in others. Little known fact is that I believe this is correct. Eastlake has the second most pitched greens from front to back on the PGA tour behind only Pebble beach. Yeah, I would, uh, I would agree with that. There's, there's not many straight putts no. at Eastlake. And especially if you go past hole high and you're coming downhill across grain, across Ridge, it's really difficult to make putts. And so it's, we see that every year in the tour championship, you see guys miss a lot of 10, 12 footers, very, very narrowly miss, but they're deceiving. It just makes them tough to putt. Talking about modernizing golf, can I play in a hoodie at Eastlake? True or false? Yes. As long, uh, yeah. I mean, we're not going to. How do you know, feel about that? I don't love it personally, but <laughs> am I, I going to tackle you on the first tee? Probably not. I love hoodies. But I don't think you should play golf in them, but I digress. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, Chad, this you is carry been... some in the shop at all, Chad, or are you? Uh, is is that not one of your vendors' favorites yet? We do have a hoodie in the shop, but it's not one that you would play golf. It's extra soft and and thick on purpose. <laughs> it's a tailgating hoodie. Yeah, exactly. Nice. Well, Chad, you survived all the hard questions. We're gonna uh, close with a kind of round of, of quick hits. So Dan okay. leads a section called tap ins. And then I'll switch to some business questions called buy or sell. So these are just kind of first answer that comes to mind, quick okay. hits, or feel free to expand. It's your world. So Chad, we know we've got a reputation for being quite a barbecue connoisseur and cook and chef. Uh, who wins a cook-off, you or Stuart Sink? Well, it's tough to answer that one because we're teammates. We have a team together. You have to answer I would it. Say, you have to answer. Yeah, I have to answer. I, I, I have to go. I have to vote on myself on that one. Yeah. I'll, I'll definitely go, Chad, uh, on that answer. Yeah. Love it. Bet on yourself and double down. Yeah. Okay. So in this winning cook-off, what drink pairs best with your barbecue? Ice cold beer for me. Any favorites? Pick whatever you like. Some people like light beer. Some people don't. Whatever you like. So, but it has to be ice cold. Bear Bryant or Nick Saban? Nick Saban. When it comes to polos, performance fabrics or cotton fabrics? Performance. What if you were a GM somewhere outside of Atlanta? Would you say the same thing? Cotton certainly has its place, but it's for, from what sells. If you're looking at it from a pure retail standpoint and what people are wearing, they're not wearing cotton. They're not asking for cotton. So I just don't think it's it's there. And some brands are still trying to do it and some doing it better than others. But, you know, for me personally, it's it's there's no contest. What do you prefer most, giving lessons or sitting in board meetings? Giving lessons. Why? Because... Well, I, I think that a couple of reasons. One, I think that except for playing golf with someone, giving someone a lesson is a great way to get to know them. And then if they, you're able to have a positive impact on them and how they play and how they enjoy the game, that's you know hopefully something that they're not trying to do for a living. They're just trying to go from an 18 to a 14 or a 14 to a six or whatever it is. You, you become invested in their development and they, it's just like they'll come in the clubhouse and tell you about how they play. And uh, to me, that's, that's just, a, that's a great thing. Some of my best relationships I have with members are people that I teach. And um, I don't do a lot of teaching nowadays, but I still have some people that I still do teach that I used to teach when I was, you know, doing my other job. And it's just a great 
relationship. I, in my, the only downfall for me is I often forget to charge people. And uh, it's, it's just, for me, it's just, you know, can I make them happier on the golf course? That's, that's really what it's about. Who do you most look forward to seeing on Tour Championship Week? I would say the, because the players change every year and we don't have a lot of direct interaction with the players. I mean, and I get that. I mean, I understand Stuart Sink is a buddy. I understand the life and I understand the life that these guys have. And it's one place to another and they're doing a job. I would say it's just the, the, the staff, the, the staff from the PGA Tour, the staff that we interact with, with Cope and Southern, the, the people that come in that are really behind the scenes making it happen. I really look forward to seeing them and working with them. And then in addition to the, the local folks that we deal with all year, it just adds to a, a very fun week and everybody's working hard and they're working together. And I think that they're, they're really underappreciated if you don't understand what it really takes to run a tour event. You can just come and, and watch the people that you will never know their names and how hard they work and how much they care about doing the work that really produces what you see on television. So for me, it's, it's those guys and gals. I'm just glad the answer wasn't Roberto Castro. So we didn't see his head inflate on this video conference right now. If I saw Chad every year at the tour championship, my bank account would be a lot more padded than it is. <laughs> That's true. That's true. When the sea of people was swarming tiger on the walk up 18 in route to winning the 2018 tour championship, Talk to me about what was going through your superintendent's mind. Was he happy, like in pump, like the rest of us were, or was he freaking out about the course condition with all of that foot traffic going on? He was freaking out. What about you? I was standing on the on the the, the overhang, and and the thing that I couldn't get past were the people crawling under the sticker bushes, trying to get under <laughs> the sticker bushes. Grown men not realizing that there was zero room on the other side and they were just diving right under. And then just, I, I just stopped for a second and watched it. And the, and I'll never forget just the, the buzz, the, the energy that was in the air for people that were so happy for him. And I just was like, man, this is awesome for him. And uh, if we have any damage to the golf course, so be it. And this is an incredible moment for golf and it's an incredible moment for Tiger, especially. And I think everybody felt it that was there that day. And I'll never forget kind of what it felt like after you got past the kind of your initial reaction of you're not supposed to be doing that, which is you know, there's too much of that in golf uh, versus to like, hey, this is happening. It's awesome. I hope nobody gets hurt. That was one of the things I thought about. And once we realized that nobody got hurt, including Tiger or Rory or any of their caddies or any of the TV people that were with them, it was awesome. I have a feeling Powerade was not the best selling beverage, I think. No, never is. But, you know, it's... Uh, it's a Coke product, so we, 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 we support it, and Powerade Zero and Coke Zero and all the other ones. So that yeah, way. There was a lot of uh, other beverages consumed. That way. All, all right, Chad. We'll... You made all your tap-ins. Over to you, Roberto, for buy or sell. All right, Chad. Buy or sell. Tesla stock. Buy. Buy or sell. Net format for the Tour Championship. I'm buying it. Buy or sell. Allowing hoodies on the golf course. Well, we already covered that one. I jumped the gun on that one. Uh, buy or sell FedEx or Atlanta-based UPS? FedEx. That away, company man. Buy or sell Bobby's brisket? Uh, definitely sell Bobby's brisket. <laughs> All right, what's the story there? Stuart teed me up for that. Come on, what is Bobby's brisket? Bobby's brisket is so we were cooking a competition up in Cumming or somewhere. And we had a we had a brisket at Eastlake that was a, that was frozen, a Snickerer Farms brisket. And so my job was to bring the brisket to the competition, among other things. So we I didn't really look at it. 
I went and got it. I asked one of the guys in the kitchen to get it for me and we put it in a cooler and I didn't really look at it. We got all the way there and it was kind of a par cooked brisket, not very good. Just was, it was just a complete screw up on my part. Illegal. You're not even supposed to do that in competition. I mean, we didn't have any, any, any chance to win. So it was, it was just a terrible mistake. And Stuart and the other guy on our team, Mike, started calling up Bobby's brisket. And that's something I'll never live down. Definitely selling Bobby's brisket. percent. <laughs> you guys should, I know you guys do some charitable donations where you guys will come and cook. Some, yes. You can auction off a, a dinner with Q School, which is the name of your competition mm-hmm. barbecue team. But I mean, the, the price people are paying just cannot be high enough to hang out with you, Stuart, and Lipnick, by the way. Yeah, it's just incredible. It's, uh, it's so much fun. It's so much fun to do it. We love doing it. And your, your food is incredible. You guys cooked for our charity event that we did at the Athletic Club uh, six yes. or eight years ago, and the food was off the charts. And you guys were so generous, rolled up the big pit barbecue smoker behind a you know pickup truck. All three, you took a day out of your out of your schedule and that was it was a big big hit so all right last buy or sell pickle business or golf business mm, i have to say golf business for now okay pickle business maybe for later <laughs> nice parker's pickles everyone i tell you to go to the website but i think it's friends and family only right now friends and family only yep no no website unfortunately yet when it's your full-time business we'll have uh we'll have you sponsor the podcast and we'll You'll just be selling pickles like crazy. Like crazy, yes. Chad, thanks a ton. Super informative. Uh, I learned a ton of things that I've never known about running a golf course at the highest level. You're a true leader and really, really impressive. So thanks for the time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Really enjoyed it. Wish you guys all the best. Thanks again for the time. This is super, super helpful and informative. I think, uh, I think our audience will love it. Dan, really appreciate Chad taking the time to talk to us. I've known Chad for a long time and, and seen what he's done at Eastlake, but getting a look under the hood was really, really insightful, really interesting. Uh, what were your big takeaways? I mean, first of all, I was just so impressed by how many positions Chad holds. First of all, I don't, I don't know many clubs that have a GM, COO, director of golf titles, period, let alone under one, one person. So I was really impressed by how that must give him just a total 360 view of the club, its operations and its mission. You've been there a little bit longer and you've seen Eastlake and, and, and Chad. How do you how have you seen sort of him evolve in those roles? Well, you make a good point because the two big roles at most clubs are GM and director of golf. And he has both of those. So Eastlake does not have tennis, does not have pool, is not doing a million Mother's Day brunches and stuff that some other country clubs are doing. So it's more feasible that he could do those two things, but it's still a big job. Both of those are big jobs. So it's really, it was cool. Just really get some details on, on what he does day to day. Yeah, definitely. The, the other thing that struck me about how he sees his role was interesting. I'm fascinated by how people approach their jobs as leaders and you jump right in and ask about decisions he makes. And it's all about how he defers to employees and their experience and how they can sort of, manifest the club experience to members by being focused, by being uh, present, et cetera. And that mentality of everything, it doesn't have to go through Chad. He's not where the buck stops all the time. It's how you distribute. 
that ownership and experience of the club really struck me. Um, reminiscing a little bit of what we talked about to Harry Arnett in episode two about a lot of ways. I, I saw a little bit of a parallel there. Yeah, Harry mentioned avoiding CEO disease. I think we talked about that with Harry. And gosh, has, has anyone done a better job of that than Chad? Like going back to the kitchen, seeing where the food comes in. I felt like you really had a, a pulse on the agronomy side of things. That is not a guy that's in an ivory tower. He's really amongst amongst the guys. And, and you nailed it. The one, like my biggest takeaway will be that when a member complains or something goes wrong, his first instinct is to try to evaluate how he failed the employee by not putting them in a position to succeed. And that, that to me will be my biggest takeaway from this conversation. The servant leader mindset. I love it. hundred percent, hundred percent servant leadership mindset. Switching gears a little bit. I'm really curious to get your take on this Roberto, because I, I didn't realize how, uh, prevalence the corporate membership model was at Eastlake. And I mean, you've been around the block more than I have and seen many, many more clubs than I have. How, how prevalent is that model in your experience? It struck me as something unique. Not very prevalent at all. I think, I think it's kind of a dated model, but it was always a minority share of the membership where XYZ club would try to get 500 individual members. And then They'd offer a corporate membership where a local law firm could put five people in or get some access, but it's never been a big part of private golf as far as I know, but Eastlake is a total outlier there. For 20 years, that was hundred percent of the membership, except for those few legacy members. And I'm telling you, those are a handful, like 10 or 20 guys that were the legacy members from kind of the dark days of Eastlake. So pretty unique. Yeah, the, the utilization aspect of it was interesting. You jump right in there. You said, is it true that the corporate members play during the week and the, I don't know what you'd call them, private members play during the weekend? And then Chad was like, yeah, that's, that's, that's part of it. So I thought it was a genius way to expand the membership without crowding the club all at the same time. Yeah, and I think it goes back to utilization and how you get people through a golf course and the best best use of that land, of that property, of that investment every day to go maintain a golf course like how do you get a return on that and not just monetarily like how do you best use that asset what our listeners don't know is that you're obsessed with this utilization topic you and i both did well going back to our college days we both had to do our own capstone design project we weren't in the same group but i know you were obsessed with this topic and it was a big part of your thesis uh so uh, i i know this runs deep for you yeah, I have to admit, our project was at the Georgia Aquarium, where we just looked at how to get the building loaded up faster. It had just opened. And the only complaint about the aquarium was just how crowded the exhibits would get. So we went in and kind of evaluated what the best way to admit people to the, to the aquarium was. And I, I see golf as the same way. And it just, if I was a senior in college at Tech now, I would be dying to go to the PGA of America or the PGA Tour and put some numbers to like pace of play and tee time. So for example, they found out that spacing the tee times from eight minutes to 10 minutes gives you a little bit more room between the groups. So you can absorb variability of a lost ball or whatever. But I just feel like someone needs to make like a easy plug and play model. This is where our tee times are. We have 18 holes. That's 18 service stations. Let's say you have a big turn stand. How does that affect the back nine pace of play if one group goes right from nine to 10 and the next group takes 15 minutes to go to the bathroom, get a hot dog, get a beer? Like, does that jam up the whole back nine? I just feel like there should be a product or 
a platform where you can just plug and play all this stuff and figure out the best way to get people through the golf course. But maybe we can, maybe we can build that out one day. <laughs> or, or sponsor a team of students, see if they can do it. That'd be so cool, man. But more personally, the utilization, I really think golf can do so much better on that front. Like personal anecdote, when I was 13, 14 years old, growing up Atlanta suburbs, we weren't members of a club. And I started going with a friend to a place called Crooked Creek. And the pro was super nice. He saw that I loved golf and like would play any chance I got. And he basically gave me an opportunity to come out, chip and putt, hit balls anytime I wanted and play when it wasn't busy. So I never got to make a tee time. Couldn't play Saturday mornings, obviously. Couldn't play Friday afternoons. But being able to go there and chip a putt, hang out, check in with the starter, and he would be like, hey, about 2.30, like the tee sheet opens up. You can go play and not, not charge me when I was 12, 13 years old. It was a huge reason why I was able to continue in golf. And I think that's the biggest gap in quote-unquote growing the game is you get people introduced to golf through the first tee and various different programs. But then the next step, getting on a golf course, playing more consistently, it gets really cost prohibitive. And just think about how many golf courses, private clubs, public courses across the whole spectrum. Again, you're maintaining this asset. You're pumping all this money into maintenance and, and keeping the course great. What's wrong with having some different people come play it when it's not busy and whatever that is late in the day or Sunday mornings, a lot of private clubs aren't busy because people do different things, go to church, whatever. I just think that that's a big underserved uh, asset in golf that we could do better as a whole and, and hopefully will in the future. Look at you, growing the game. Growing the game. <laughs> I love it. Let's jump into some of the, phil the philanthropic aspect of Eastlake that we covered. There's, there's a lot of debate zooming out way back in the role of the corporation, right? Is it a What's part of the profit-driven mission versus the social mission? And you've seen us evolve a lot at Eastlake. So, so tell us how you see Eastlake and what you know about what they do and take the listeners there. What's well, a huge, it's a huge part of what the Eastlake Foundation does. So Eastlake Foundation, if you simplify it, has revitalized an entire community and delivered great education and quality of life to a huge big neighborhood in Atlanta. Well, about 35% of the Eastlake Foundation's budget comes directly from the Tour Championship. So the corporate dollars that Coca-Cola and Southern Company and others put into that tournament, sure, they get marketing exposure and they sponsor a great tournament. It's great on that front. But to be able to be you know, roughly a third of, of a community is huge. And that's just one data point amongst 50 on the PGA tour or however many events we have salesmanship club in Dallas, the Thunderbirds in Phoenix, all these local charitable organizations get a big check at the end of their tournament from the tour and the sponsors. And the, I don't know exactly which bucket all the money comes from, but I think you pulled the number $3 billion. The tour has donated charity over the years. So I think that really, I'm sure, People are a little skeptical, but it's a real thing. And it's cool to see it in, in my community and all across the country. Yeah, it's fascinating work that they do. And you've seen a bunch of tour stops, right? You mentioned a couple examples of other foundations. The other one that I that jumped to mind for me was, was St. Jude. In, in yeah. Texas. 
like what what really sets this apart in your in your mind like it, it gets a lot of publicity and i'm sure it's well earned how does it stand out to you in your mind versus the other 50 tour stops that have a charitable mission well really just it's really just community focused i think that's probably how it stands out so obviously st jude or memphis all goes to the hospital and i'm not as well versed in what some of the other host organizations they're called charity organizations do but I mean, where you live and where you go to school, what's more valuable than improving the quality of those things for people? That's East Lake's mission. So I just can't think of a higher purpose than improving somebody's, those are like two of the highest value quality of life indicators. Like how safe is your neighborhood? How good is your school? So it's just, that's as good as it gets, if you ask me. Yeah, I agree. Um, I definitely came off the episode feeling really good about what they were doing. I also came off the episode feeling really hungry uh, because we talked about a lot of food. We talked about barbecue. We talked about the infamous Mahi Mahi sandwich, but it got me thinking a little bit more about Chad and his decision-making style where there's a spectrum here of like how deeply analytical you get. Think Bryson DeChambeau in business and then think somewhere like much more intuitive kind of let it flow based on interaction, I sort of pegged Chad in the more intuitive side where he's willing to make intuition-based things by listening to his membership, et cetera, but also with a little bit of a flair for experimentation, right? The Mahi Mike sandwich was a good example. So I, um, I'm curious if you've, if you've seen other forms of like experiments, either Eastlake or other, other venues where you've seen sort of like, that's unusual, like a, an unusual little take on how to make the country club experience special that has sort of panned out. Yeah, it would be interesting to get on the show a board, a longtime board member of a private club because I kind of pick up some anecdotes of uh, Chardonnay politics. Is that what Ferris called it? <laughs> That's right. But I heard a nugget from my club that they were looking at doing like a new New Year's program or something. And the board and the GM like looked very closely at how that would net out financially. And it was not very intuitive. Obviously, it would be a service and an experience for the members, but if it wasn't going to pay for itself, they were going to try to, they were looking at it through that lens pretty closely, which I think is important. But I got the opposite feeling from Chad. I, I agree with you. I felt like he was on the more intuitive side. And, and maybe that's just more enjoyable to talk about. But um, I don't know. It'd be interesting to see what the decision making process is for clubs and GMs but we'll, we'll have some more folks on see if we can figure it out. Yeah. Well, my last takeaway was uh, I learned the difference between Zach Johnson and I, we talked about the story where he got the course record at Eastlake and asked not to be recognized for it because the course conditions were, were too easy. Come on. Zach. Um, I, well, you, you've got a couple course records that I'm aware of. I, I have none. So, uh, but if I did, I would absolutely lobby as hard as I can to get the biggest plaque I can get away with and just stamp that thing on there. I, 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 I even pay for it if I needed to, to make it happen. <laughs> you think that's the only difference between you and Zach Johnson? Ah, probably not, but the, the biggest one that I just learned about. That's pretty funny. Yeah, that was a that was very on brand for Zach. And I don't disagree with you. I would probably be uh, just, you guys want to put a plaque on the first tee, stick it on my member account. I think that's... I think that's probably the more common reaction to shooting 60 around any golf course. I don't care how soft the greens were. Come on. Well, Zach can keep the course record. We'll keep the course record show. 
that's as close as I think you I will ever get to a course record. So I'll take it. Deal. We'll keep uh, we'll keep turning stones over on the course record show. Until next time. The Course Record Show is produced by Roberto Castro and Dan Ferreira. Executive producer, John Robinson.